Ken Duckworth, and I'm the Chief Medical Officer of NAMI National. So what inspired you to write uh, this book? This, so there's a couple threads here, but one is this is a book that I could have used. So my dad was very loving and very charismatic and very ill and would periodically get very sick, psychotic, and hospitalized. And my family was subsumed in isolation and shame. And again, this is the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, but that was when I happened to be growing up. And so um, I could have benefited from a book like this to see real people and how they problem solved. Real people and how they figured out how to communicate, what things they put together to make for a successful life. So to me, I wanted that. Uh, but also, as the doctor for the National Alliance on Mental Illness, I asked myself the question, why doesn't the largest mental health group in the world really have its own book? And so uh, I really wanted to do this. And uh, Michael, every time I'd go to my bookstore in Boston, I think nobody's written a book with real people. And then five years would go by and I'd forget all about the idea. And then I'd come back and I think nobody's written the book that could have helped me. And so sooner or later, this has got to happen. So uh, to make a long story short, uh, COVID changed mental health from a you problem to a we problem. And I pitched the uh, the uh, CEO of NAMI, who was brand new, Dan Gillis. And I said, Dan, I want to write NAMI's first book. I'll give NAMI the copyright. NAMI can keep all the royalties. I'm going to interview a lot of real people. I have a vision for what this could be. And he said, great, go. And so if any of you out there are ever running organizations, if somebody comes to you with an idea, the best thing you can say to the person is just go. And so, um, you know, we got a fantastic publisher, Molly Stern, edited Michelle Obama's Becoming the Martian and Gone Girl. And then she started her own company. You Are Not Alone was her first title. So it was a great experience, Michael, but really I just wanted a practical book. And so I asked people throughout the NAMI community, fairly randomly, I'd give a talk at NAMI, Wisconsin. I'd say, anybody want to be in the book? Send me your email. I can chat with you about it, but you have to use your name. Yeah. You know how all those books written by doctors, psychiatrists in particular, my patients are my greatest teacher. Anyone resembling any real people, it's purely fictitious. Any resemblance is purely coincidental. And I'm like, I like privacy. I think privacy is a good thing. However, I don't think it's the only way to approach this because another way to do it is say, I went through this. My name's, you know, Tom, and I'm here to help you because I'm a real person and I lived with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, opiate addiction, suicidality, whatever it is. So that was the dream, Michael. And then COVID happened and all of a sudden I think there became a market for this idea that I'd been, you know, bouncing around for years. And and with the book, you do talk a lot about your own personal struggles with your father and all that. Was writing this book, you know, therapeutic to you? That's a good question. It was an excavation, Michael, which I found pretty upsetting because I would spend rainy weekends thinking about everything I could remember from my childhood. So I called my old therapist and I said, can I come back and see you? Because I found it, you know, activating or upsetting. Then I got even closer to my cousin who remembered the best parts of my dad. And I would call him two or three times a week and said, tell me a nice story about my dad. 
And my dad was a really good guy. And my cousin named Jim Duckworth, Jimmy Duck, he'd say, oh, you remember the time he took us to Baskin Robbins? I don't remember this. But remember, imagine a time when you couldn't imagine there were 31 flavors. Again, this is a long time ago. But his, my cousin's positive memories of my dad helped me because I was thinking about some of the harder things. So I wrote dozens and dozens of pages. It was kind of upsetting. I'm not going to deny it. And it's a love gift dedicated to him because I never would have become a psychiatrist without this particular love for him. And I'm not a gifted science kid. I never won the uh, science fair in fifth grade, Michael. My volcanoes never did anything. <laughs> I only went to the medical schools that didn't require calculus. And it turns out no one's come into my office and demanded a differential equation. It's never happened. And I feel like the fact that I wrote a book on storytelling, kind of the poetry of people is appropriate because I was never a hard science kid. Yeah. And uh, for me, when I was reading it in 2019, I was diagnosed with uh, bipolar disorder too. Mm. And a lot of it, my first thing I did, I Googled celebrities with bipolar. Mm. But at that point, that's that's all I could find. With your book, you actually talk to people and, you know, it truly makes you feel that you are not alone. People are going through the same thing. I am so delighted to hear that, Michael. That's exactly why I wrote this, because I know my dad felt alone. I know my family felt alone. I know I felt alone. Millions of people, millions. It's not like 15 people have this. Millions of people have depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, borderline personality disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder. It's unbelievable. So I am delighted that you had that response, because that's what I was going for. And then you might be able to learn from some of the people in the book what they tried, what didn't work, what did work. The idea is to, I also wanted to democratize expertise. I think if you've lived with something, you've learned something. And if you've loved someone with something in the mental health space, you've probably also learned something too. How no one had thought to write a book about that, Michael, is beyond me. And so better late than never, you know, I wanted to do it for at least a decade. And then COVID happened. I'm like, now's the moment. Now people want to talk about mental health in a way that they didn't. And Michael, how are you doing? May I ask that? Yeah, uh, I'm I'm doing better now that, you know, I, I'm doing something I, I truly love in helping people. I feel like I'm my true self. It's odd because... You know, I told people publicly a year and a half ago. So I feel like a, a brand new person, if you will. Yes. Because all that's gone, that nervousness and all that. So many people in my interviews told me, Michael, that living their truth, whatever it is, just takes a burden off their shoulders. Yeah. And they can be themselves in public, in church, with their friends. And Many people said it gives meaning to their lives. And this is exactly how I feel about my little journey into psychiatry. This was a, you know, a career that I would not have chosen, but I feel so grateful for. And I'm delighted, Michael, that you have had the same experience. Yeah. And, and with your book, not only that I could relate to it, you know, I talked to my wife, how she, what she goes through and, 
you know, that's some similar in the book dealing with family members. And then you put the history and how did you decide on this format for the book? Well, I went to a course called How to Write a Book for Doctors uh, at uh, the Harvard Medical School, put it on. I happen to live in Boston. I'm an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard. So I'm like a two-celled organism at Harvard. I don't want you to get the wrong idea. But I know and get along with all the people who've written 400 papers who are full professors. I was always interested in like clinical teaching and helping people. So I went to this class in 2018, 2019, and I think I was uh, 2017 on how to write a book. And I only wanted to write this book. And uh, I felt like I was the slowest learner in the book, in the class, felt like other people were writing books. And the third year, a man came up to me. I think he represented one of the local academic press. And he said, you've been here three years in a row. And I said, I'm not a natural writer, but I have an idea that I can't let go of. And he, I told him about the idea. He said, Ken, this is a fantastic idea. We should talk. And while I didn't end up working with him, he gave me the confidence that just maybe this idea had merit. Then, of course, COVID happens. And I'm on CNN, even though I'm not young and handsome anymore. I'm on, you know, these TV <laughs> shows. And people are asking me, how do people get better? How do people deal with isolation? What are the practical things that people can do? I'm like, the practical things? My God. That's my whole life interest. What are the practical things that we can do, right? So for each other and in our families, for other people. And so that's when I happened to also get a brand new CEO at NAMI, Dan Gillison. I pitched him the book and it was a go. So um, I guess the answer to the question, Michael, is I wanted to do this for about a decade. And if any of you have an idea that will not let you go, I want you to know it won't take you a decade like it took me. Like I was really not a fast person on this, but I couldn't let it go. It's interesting. I'd write out drafts maybe five or six years ago. I'd look at it and I'd say, oh, this is terrible. And then I'd throw them out. And then a year or two later, I'd come back to it. I'd go to the bookstore, still no book with real people. I'd say, come on, somebody's got to. So I kind of outlined what I thought would be in the book. And that's actually very close to what the um, book proposal was. The one change, Michael, so I'm a community psychiatrist and I'm like way on the recovery end of the spectrum, but I had a chapter that was called The Power of Community because I've seen how much belonging yeah. to a group like NAMI or the Trevor Project or DBSA, Mental Health America, means to people, right? AA, whatever it is. But in listening to so many people, Michael, I had to change that chapter to the power of peers and community. Because to me, if you were paying attention, what people said is, what really helped me is my friend Michael, he talked about his experience and I realized I could learn from him. Then I became a peer leader, a peer specialist. Then I could teach others. And I got so much gratitude from that. So I had to change that chapter. But other than that, I pretty much, it took me a decade, I want to emphasize, uh, you know, the the framework that I had, talk to real people, talk to families, ask America's leading experts basic questions, 500 words or less, no dopamine receptors. Explain it to me like I'm a bright person who didn't go to medical school. This is the book I always felt it would have saved my family 
if I had found families that could communicate better than mine, could anticipate patterns of illness. I think my dad would have read this book when no one was looking. Like, I do, I believe that, because he was a smart guy, but just so much shame at that moment in time. And of course, people like you, Michael, and the 100 plus people in my book were transcending that. Yeah, and I see, you know, more people are talking about it, but how challenging it was, you know, your dad in the 60s to, you know, go through this. Yeah, it was really tough, but it's interesting. At that moment in time, a company stood by a man, right? And again, I'm using the man example. That was the model of the salesman in the 60s, right? It was a male-dominated field. And my dad worked for Chef Boyardee. And when he lost his job in Philadelphia, they said, Duckworth, you've screwed up. I think after a manic psychotic episode when I was eight, we're in a U-Haul driving in Michigan. I think they said, Duckworth, we need a man in Detroit, take it or leave it. And he said, I'll take it. But not every company would do that now. So I want to emphasize the 60s and the 70s were harder in some ways. But on one salary, when my dad was you know, disabled, my mom was a secretary. We could afford a cute little house. I went to the same school district. We never became homeless. My dad would be hospitalized for months at a time. I have a best friend from that high school. He and I, you know, are in touch every single day, really. We call each other. You know, we love each other's kids. Like, I had what were called the social determinants of mental health were all in my favor. The University of Michigan was basically free down the street. Like, a lot of things were to my advantage. And I think openness and being able to talk about it is critical but we have lost something. People who get psychotic on the job may not be offered a job in the same company. One uh, of the parents gets hospitalized for six months, people lose their housing. So, and I was also a white kid and I had no idea what an advantage that was. So these things are both true and complex through the lens of the generations, right? I, yeah. I, think economically we might have had more hardship but i think with openness he might have had fewer episodes that so we could talk about it get ahead of it like we could have made sense of it so i guess it's a complicated answer michael but things are changing in multiple dimensions at once in our society and this one is a positive that people have the option to share their experience I do not encourage anyone to go on Channel 5 and tell their personal story. You have to be in a place where you're ready to do it. And I emphasize that to every single person in the book. I said, you know, we're going to sell 100,000 of these. You know, this book is going to move. It's going to be in libraries all across America. Yeah. I want you to know I can't take your name back. So what I did, Michael, is I did a Zoom interview with people, which was a handy COVID project. Then I sent them, here's the quote that I want to use. This quote about how you learn to accept that you had bipolar disorder after talking to your mother and the recognition that, quote, I wasn't crazy, but in fact, mood disorders run in my family. Okay. Well, that woman was amazing and it was a beautiful interview. And I thought, now that's a lesson that could help other people. 
Yeah, the aha moment, if you will, that I read in the book. I I had one of those too. Like now I know what it, what it is. Now I could work on it. So, Michael, it, may I ask you about your aha moment? What was it that led to that? If I if you feel free discussing, yeah. it. if you don't, we're good. Yeah. So uh, that was. Uh, there's stuff happening at work and stuff. It was stressful. So I finally, you know, got checked of a diagnosis and went everywhere. And then they said bipolar disorder too. And I'm like, okay, so it's not just me feeling different than everyone else. There's actually something. And then I did my research and all that. And I mean, the other thing is, uh, like you said, some work, some jobs may not be as receptive and in 2019, uh, my biz- my job wasn't the best. So uh, that was half of it. Then my uh, other aha moment is when I said it publicly. Yeah. So, you know, that journey is a journey that I'm very interested in. You know, the process of accepting something that isn't necessarily a positive, but people feel empowered once they realize This is a thing. Millions of people have it. This is researched. You know, there's other people just like me, probably right at the same supermarket that I'm at, because millions of people have it. And feeling alone, I think, is a profoundly difficult experience. So I want to salute you for that journey, Michael. And, you know, I think you represent a moment. I caught a wave. Hanging out at NAMI, I had all these people who wanted to tell their story. They're going into schools. They're talking to police departments. They've been incarcerated and they're training prison guards on how to de-escalate crises. So I had this tremendous advantage, but it's so nice to hear that this is your experience as well. One of the publishers who bid on the book said, I don't think you can get people to use their real names. And I said, I actually think you were right a decade ago. Yes. A decade. I don't think this book could have been written, which is why, you know, when I started 10 years ago, it didn't even seem remotely believable. But then something happened, and whether it's celebrities or athletes, people like you, this is happening all across the country. People don't want to have that same level of shame that is attended with these ordinary conditions. And that makes sense because what I'm doing now, talking to people and, you know, having more authentic conversations, definitely couldn't do this 10 years ago. Yeah, it's a moment. We've caught a moment, Michael. But like you said, you've been working on this, you know, for 10 years, a a long time. Uh, How does it feel when people were reading it, talking about it? How did it feel for you? It's the greatest experience to do something you weren't really sure you could do. Now, my wife, Kelly, believed in me every minute of every day. And that helps, too, uh, because somebody who sees it outside, this is a great idea. You're the perfect person to do it. And my thoughts are, who would want this book? I've never written a book. I have gray hair. There aren't really authors who are 60 who are first-time authors. But, you know, somebody believing in me helped me to get there. But the response has been unbelievable. It's really been very beautiful. I do these little book signings all across the country, and people say, you could change my name with Trevor, with Nikki, With Sarah, you could change my name. That's my story. And it was incredibly helpful to me. 
And I'd love to talk to that family because they figured out how to problem solve, right? So to me, um, it's been very beautiful as an experience. I go across the country and people from the book are with me on my book panels. And they say, why did you choose? I asked them, why did you choose to be in this book? You don't have to use your name. And a man named Mike Smith from Wisconsin, he was so fantastic. He teaches in the schools. He teaches a program called Ending the Silence. And he's a local hero in his neighborhood of Wisconsin. He'll be at McDonald's and people say, hey, didn't you teach us about mental health? You know, in our health class, my sister got help for her depression because of you, Mike. Right. Uh, what Mike said to me is. You know, I don't care if 30 million people read this book and realize I have schizophrenia. I want someone to read this book and say, Mike has put together a beautiful life living with schizophrenia. So he leans over to me and he says, Ken, I hope you sell 30 million of these because I'm not ashamed of this. I've assembled a life of giving to other people. And his family was there. They were also very beautiful, very articulate. And again, I think there's something empowering about owning the truth. Uh, I feel very blessed to do it. All the royalties go to NAMI. So, you know, I don't feel any conflict about making money on it. Like yeah. this was a love gift. And I wanted NAMI to have a book in the worst way. And uh, I'm happy to say there's going to be another book. And I'm even happier to say that I'm not writing it, Michael. Um, <laughs> my protege, uh, Christine Crawford, the associate medical director, she's writing a parent's guide that'll be out a year from oh. now, spring of 24. She's interviewing kids, teenagers, and parents, which is a different book, but it'll have a similar cover, the same publisher. So I'm proud to say, you know, NAMI's going to have a little line of books. And uh, I gave a talk to Oklahoma City's affiliate at NAMI. One of the women in the uh, audience works at the library. And she said, Ken, I want you to know all 20 copies have been checked out. Like we have 20 copies of your book in Oklahoma City, and they're all in circulation. And I thought, God, that is actually the greatest thing ever. Because all I wanted to do was help people who were like me and like my little family. That's why I became a psychiatrist, even though I wasn't a science whiz. That's why I wanted to pursue this. And to see a dream realized is pretty fun, Michael. But I think I'm a one-hit wonder. There's a great Spotify playlist of one-hit wonders, and I'm going to be on it. Like, I don't have another great idea. This was my book. This was <laughs> this was my one idea. So don't anticipate a long line of books from me. <laughs> yeah, but with that one book, I mean, just reading it, it has such an impact on people who are dealing with mental illness that thank you for doing that because it, it needed to be done of people, you know, just sharing themselves. Because like you say in the book, everyone's going to go through different treatments and all that, but yes. there are similarities and feelings and stuff like yes. that. There are themes to how people assemble a life. And I think it's just really a valuable uh, thing to learn from other people that are real people. And I want to emphasize that, um, you know, there are real people who are also experts. Yeah. And I don't know why nobody ever thought of that before. That doesn't mean that you've conducted research and have a hundred grants. It doesn't mean that. 
That's another kind of expertise. They're also in the book. But if you've lived with hearing voices for 30 years and you've learned to really accept it, I mean, really accept it, then you realize you can have a great life. Yeah. You spend no energy fighting the voices. This man's on clozapine. He's getting the best possible care. He has a loving family. He's a driver for Meals on Wheels. Everybody loves him in his community. And he told me, once you really learn to accept it, you can recognize you have a great life. But if you're going to fight it, you can spend all day fighting it. And again, the medical tools are imperfect. They often help. They don't always help. They have side effects. This book is not, you know, run out and, you know, do any one thing. Evaluate the ideas. These tools are imperfect, right? They all have side effects. You have to figure out what's the lowest effective dose. So to me, I loved that real people talked about how ECT saved their life and how ECT gave them memory problems. That seems true to me. So again, I don't take a position on this. I just listened to 130 people. And the only reason I stopped, Michael, is I was on a deadline. <laughs> Publishers like, come on, dude, we want this book out. But then people started to email me, Ken, I hear you're interviewing people. I want to be in your book. I want to be in your next book. Can I tell you my story? You don't have anyone from the Native American community, which is true. The book is super diverse, but it's not perfect. I want to be in your book because, you know, you don't have that perspective. And I need to share with you what it's like in my world. So to me, there are more opportunities to kind of do oral histories of mental health or humans of mental health, you know, like humans of New York, however you yeah. think about this. I do think there are more opportunities. But this was a first, first, good first effort. And yeah. it was a great privilege to do it. A great privilege. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk to me and, you know, what you're doing is huge. And then you're talking to me who I'm doing in my dining room. So thank you. Michael, I'm in my kitchen. You know, <laughs> we're each doing our own thing in the service of the same mission. It's a great honor to meet you. Thank you for finding me. The National Alliance of Mental Illness is everywhere across the country. You're living with a mental health condition or you love someone who does have a mental health condition and you have questions about it, you want to learn something, go to NAMI.org. Wherever you are in America, there's a NAMI group. There's a NAMI organization. And they also advocate to fight for better services. Yeah. Michael, you might have heard of the 988 crisis lifeline yes. number. Mm -hmm. I want to emphasize, I did no work on that. I was writing the book. But the policy team worked with all these other groups to create a three-digit suicide prevention lifeline, which is less likely to generate a police response because it's not the police's job to be a social worker, right? They have other responsibilities. Right. So yeah. increasing the chance of a mental health response to your loved one is what NAMI helped to lead in 988. So I just want you to know this is a great group. All our programs are free. Uh, we work the problem. You'll find people just like you. And that's why the book is called You Are Not Alone, Michael, because this is a community that's growing and has a lot to give. And I just want to thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for sharing what you shared with me today. It's uh, fantastic what you're doing. Mm -hmm.